0: Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And despite the fact that
1: we're recording on election day, Ah. none of this has to do with the election. No. None of what we're recording today. No. It's just our usual stuff. Yes. So I have some updates. Do you have any Uh, updates?
0: I have one. Do you want to do yours first and then
1: I'll do mine? Yeah. Yeah. Oh and I want to tell our listeners too, today's episode is the first part of what we rarely do is a two-parter. So our next episode will be the second part of today's.
0: Ooh, because yeah. yours is long. It is. Okay.
1: I thought it would be a quick, simple, easy one. Oh, no, I, those I, always turn I know, out. I know, I forgot mm. how complicated it was.
0: But it, it, uh, hopefully people will enjoy it. Ooh, and it. I don't know what it is. I'm excited. You don't. But I'm, first, I'm excited, too. i updates.
1: Okay, I have a few updates The first one is for episode 17, The Martha Moxley Murder, which we recorded in March 2017. And, you know, everybody can breathe a sigh of relief that it still pays to be white, male, and rich in America. 45 years to the day after 15-year-old Martha Moxley was murdered in Greenwich, Connecticut, prosecutors say they will not retry Michael Skakel for her murder. Skakel has been out of prison since 2013 after serving about half of a 20-year sentence. They were deciding whether to give him a new trial In 2018, his murder conviction was vacated by the Connecticut Supreme Court, which ruled that his attorney, I think that was Mickey Sherman, had deprived him of a fair trial by failing to call an alibi witness. And since then, it hasn't been clear if a new trial would be held. And Skakel was arrested for Moxley's 1975 murder in 2002. And Skakel's now 60, and the nephew of Robert and Ethel Kennedy on the Ethel side not the Kennedy side.
0: But they still always call him the Kennedy cousin.
1: Yeah, well, he is a cousin of Kennedy's. Yes, I know. Which helps him immensely in this. State's attorney, Richard Colangelo, said he thinks the state can no longer prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And one issue is of 51 potential witnesses, 17 are now dead. And Skagel's attorney, Stephen Seeger, maintains Skagel's innocent. Quote, it's a relief that the state has concluded they could not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. They never could, Seeger said. He should never have been convicted in the first place. He spent his whole life pursuing a result like today. And I would argue not his whole life since for the first 15 years Mm -hmm. of it, he hadn't been a suspect in a (laughs) murder. It's the first day of the rest of his life.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Moxley's brother, John addressed the court to thank law enforcement. And by the way, this is from, I think, a CNN report. I'm not sure, but I didn't really Google around and get the best stuff. I just took what I could find. But anyway, Mar- Moxley's brother, John, addressed the court to thank law enforcement and expresses his agreement with the decision not to pursue a retrial. I think her family's just sick of it. Outside the court, he told reporters that he still believes Skakel is responsible for killing Martha. Moxley was killed on October 30th, 1975. She was 15 at the time, and she had been hanging out with Skakel, his older brother Tommy Skakel, and some others in the affluent gated community in Greenwich, Connecticut. She was found the next morning bludgeoned and stabbed to death. A broken golf club was found nearby. And I won't go through the whole case. You know, you can listen to episode 17, but I will say in the last couple of decades, Skakel and his family, including Robert Kennedy Jr., have promoted the favorite defense of many white people in america that two black guys did it that strategy and if you want to find out why i think skakel or possibly his brother tommy did it you can listen to episode 17 Ooh, yes and i think you were of the same opinion yes
0: if he didn't do it i think his brother did it yeah which i mean i guess that's reasonable doubt i don't know
1: yeah who knows but i
0: do not believe as uh i don't believe two black guys no no. That
1: nobody saw that night, managed to get into that white, r- wealthy, gated no. community and no. run around, is they're accused of doing without anyone seeing them. No, d- doesn't I do pass, not believe
0: that.
1: Doesn't uh, pass a straight face test. No. But on the other side of the coin, black people yes. continue to get screwed in America on that side Ugh. of the coin. I have two updates to episode 77, Mm-kay. Say Her Name, the one that covered the Breonna Taylor killing and other murders by police of innocent black women. I have an indirect update and then I have a directly Breonna Taylor update, so I'll do the indirect one first. Which is yet another story about how ridiculous it is for people to say there's no systemic racism or the shit just isn't happening in our country because things continue to prove otherwise. This information, by the way, is all from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Though numerous places carried stories on this, their information was the best. On October 26, the National Fraternal Order of Police posted a heartwarming photo on its Facebook page. It was of a white police officer holding a black toddler. The caption said, This child was lost during the violent riots in Philadelphia, wandering around barefoot in an area that was experiencing complete lawlessness. The only thing this Philadelphia police officer cared about in that moment was protecting this child. What a wonderful person. He is. It's awesome. The unrest came after two Philadelphia police officers shot and killed Walter Wallace Jr., a 27-year-old black man who his family and neighbors said was experiencing a mental health crisis. Video of the killing of him showed him holding a knife and walking toward police when they opened fire. Each cop fired seven shots and killed him. The family had called for an ambulance, but cops showed up first. And we also address in episode 77 how that happening, cops with guns showing up instead of the help somebody needs can affect someone who's mentally ill. But this update isn't about that, so back to the kid. Around the same time that heartwarming Facebook post was making the rounds, there was another viral image that was also going around. A video showing at least 15 police officers swarming a vehicle, bashing in the windows, pulling out the driver, a woman, and another passenger, a teenage boy, beating them, then appearing to remove a child from the back seat. I don't have to tell you that the toddler in the SUV is the same one in the Facebook post, or maybe I do. And that toddler was the one in the Facebook post. (laughs) A Philadelphia Inquirer photographer and a freelance photographer were also on the scene and got photos of that same incident. They're not the ones whose videos went viral, though. The Fraternal Order of Police deleted the post, the heartwarming one of the cop with the little boy, about 30 minutes after the Inquirer called them asking for comment. A Fraternal Order of Police spokesperson said that after posting the photo, the organization, quote, subsequently learned of conflicting accounts of the circumstances under which the child came to be assisted by the officer and immediately took the photo and captioned down. Well, here's what happened. 28-year-old Rickia Young, a home health care aide who lives near Temple University in Philadelphia, was having trouble getting her two-year-old son to go to sleep. She thought a car ride might help. It was after midnight when she took him with her to West Philadelphia, where the unrest was, to pick up her 16-year-old nephew from a friend's house to give him a safe ride home. After picking her nephew up, Young encountered police barricades, and she attempted to make a three point turn. Police surrounded her vehicle. They pulled her and the sixteen year old from the car, threw them to the ground, beat both of them with batons, handcuffed Ooh. them, and detained them, according to Young's attorney Kevin Mincy. Young said police at the scene refused to tell her where her kid would be taken, saying only he's gonna go to a better place. We're gonna report it to DHS. And DHS for those of you you who don't know, is the Department of Human Services, which does, like, child protective stuff. And The police then put Young in a police van and took her to police headquarters at 7th and Race Streets. Her head and face were bleeding... And so they took her to Jefferson University Hospital for medical treatment and police stood watch while she was treated. She was handcuffed while she was treated and then she was taken back to headquarters and processed. Her lawyer says she was kept in a holding cell, wasn't told what charges were against her and it turns out she wasn't charged with anything and she was issued a wristband that read assault on police. She was released without being charged. What the hell? I know. No shit. She was released without being charged, and Mincy, her lawyer, says she isn't sure what time she was released, but the sun was up. This all had happened around 2 a.m., by the way. There was another woman in the police van who had a cell phone when Young was first put in the van from her car, and Young had called her mother from the van on that woman's cell phone. Her mother went to the scene to get the baby, and police told her to go to 15th Street and John F. Kennedy Boulevard which was four miles away in Center City, another part of Philadelphia. The grandmother of the toddler found him sitting in his car seat in a police cruiser with two officers. He had a lump on oh, his Oh, baby. He- I know. He had a lump on his head and glass from the SUV's broken windows in his hair. The toddler was treated at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for a large welt on his head. Young had a bloody nose, a swollen trachea, blood in her urine, and swelling and pain on her left side. This report doesn't say how the 16-year-old boy was doing or what happened to him, but he was also beaten and injured. Mincy said police have not told the family where the SUV is, and this story was written about four days after the attack on Young by the police, so over this past weekend, by the time this comes out, maybe they'll have told her. Her baby's hearing aid and her purse and wallet and cell phone were all still in the car. Mincy, the lawyer, said that Young and the baby are both traumatized. Quote, every time she sees a police officer the last couple days, she's worried that they're coming for her. Her son, even though he's hearing impaired and still developing his speech, is definitely showing some signs of trauma. Philadelphia Police Internal Affairs opened an investigation, and Commissioner Danielle Outlaw said, a few days after the incident, that one officer seen in the video, quote, using strikes against the car has been placed on restricted duty pending the the outcome of the investigation. Quote, I still don't know all of the details, but I will tell you after reviewing the video what I saw. It was quite concerning, Outlaw said, but Hmm. I'm very careful about what I say because I do not know all of the circumstances around it. Thomas Fitzpatrick, a partner at the firm representing Young, said he could say without equivocation that no one in the vehicle took part in looting or riotous behavior. Riley Ross, another lawyer for Young, said that the police Facebook posts had racial over and undertones. Quote, It's truly unbelievable and unimaginable that this is all happening at the hands of people that are sworn to protect, he said, and are now trying to falsely tell us that they are the only ones that can protect us. Despite the unrest after Wallace's shooting, which included looting, burning, and all that stuff, Fitzpatrick, the lawyer, said Philadelphia must not stand by idly and watch people be victimized and beaten by the police. Enough is enough. Who the hell do they think they are? We are not going to let this continue. And that is that part of the update. So to recap, an innocent black woman was pulled from her car, beaten, thrown in jail with a wristband around her that said, assault on police. Her two-year-old was taken away from her and just stuck in a police cruiser. Her injured two-year-old was taken away oh, from her and right. put on a pre cruiser for no good reason, and I have to say that would not have happened to me or Becky to you, right? No,
0: no. And the, well, the worst—not the worst part of it, but the added horrible part of it is that post they had, right? Um, right. I know, saying that they the baby Which- was abandoned, walking barefoot right Uh, give me a break i know jesus
1: and that the and that the only thing on that officer's mind was protecting the baby oh
0: god you know
1: yeah ripping a kid from its mother's arms or its mother's car at least and now the latest on brianna taylor this from the louisville courier journal louisville metro police sergeant Jonathan Mattingly, who was shot in the thigh during the March 13th police raid on Brianna Taylor's apartment that left her dead, is countersuing her boyfriend Kenny Walker alleging battery assault and emotional huh. distress. It's a counterclaim to uh, suit Walker has filed. Mattingly alleges Walker's shot that night, which police say struck Mattingly in the femoral artery and required five hours of surgery, was quote outrageous intolerable and offends all accepted mm. standards of decency or morality. And he's seeking a jury trial, damages, and attorney fees. I'm not sure a jury trial would be the way to go on that, but to each his own. In an emailed statement, his lawyer, Kent Wicker, wrote, Sergeant Mattingly was shot, nearly killed by Kenneth Walker. He's entitled to and should use the legal process to seek a remedy for the injury that Walker has caused him. Hmm. And Walker had sued, this summer, the police department, Mayor Greg Fisher, Attorney General Daniel Cameron, Commonwealth Attorney Tom Wine, and others. First of all, seeking immunity from prosecution and a judgment entitling him to the protection of Kentucky's stand-your-ground law for the shooting. I am a legal gun owner, and I would never knowingly shoot a police officer, he said at a press conference after he filed the suit in September. Brianna and I did not know who was banging at the door, but police know what they did. And I think as everybody knows, they were awoken by banging on the door. They did not hear anyone saying they were police. And Walker had a gun and they burst through the door and he shot because he thought somebody was bursting into their apartment. And then she died in a hail of bullets. And mattingly's lawsuit also i think kind of meanly says that walker hid and shot at them and brianna taylor who was next to him didn't hide and so she was shot kind of almost blaming walker for protecting Mm. himself i think in an incident like that you're not necessarily it's happening in split seconds you know you're not it's funny how
0: when it's the cops that are reacting and Mm -hmm. shooting people it's understandable, but when it's a citizen who's not even trained that way, yes. then it becomes this horrible thing. Yes.
1: And it's funny how often the cops shoot somebody because they think they have a weapon. And the person doesn't, but they're justified because they felt they were in danger because they thought the person had a weapon or was going for a weapon or something. And here you have a stand your ground thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I, if he had been a white guy and they hadn't been cops, he'd be given a medal or something. I know. Uh, well, well, what but, can you say? So m- another update I have is Susan Trask... Oh, so busy. I, I know. These are all short. The other ones are short. Susan Trask is. Episode 80, September 14th, and I'm just catching up on it, was the 28th anniversary of Susan Taraskiewicz's murder. And as usual, her mother made sure people remembered. Marlene Taraskiewicz told Boston 25 News, she is not a cold case, she is an active case, and will stay active until I get justice for her. One note, way back when, around the time Sue was murdered. After Sue was murdered, Northwest Airlines, her employer, offered a $250,000 reward for information leading to a conviction. It's a long story. You have to listen to the episode. Part of a harassment lawsuit, they didn't do it on their own volition. But anyway, when Northwest Airlines merged with Delta Airlines in 2008, Marlene and the rest of the family was afraid the reward would go away. So Marlene started trying to get Delta to commit to the reward. It took her until 2017, so... Um, nine years, but she got someone at Delta explain the situation and asked if they would help her, and she says, I got a letter. More than willingly, they have honored the reward. So there is hmm. still a $250,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of Sue as killers. Nobody's ever been charged in it. Marlene still thinks Sue was killed because someone thought Sue knew about a credit card scam some coworkers had going on, I think it was more complicated than that and had to do also with psychopathy and male privilege, but you have to listen to the episode to get the full explanation. And Marlene hopes the $250,000 reward might help turn up the heat. Quote, they are going to keep looking over their shoulders 28 years. Maybe they think they got away with this, but they get away with this. They're going to think they can get away with somebody else, she said. And also, Mass State Police, Massachusetts State Police of the Tarasquist case remains open and active. And finally, I have a quick Jelaine Maxwell Ooh. update. And she was Jelaine, episode Lady Jelaine, Jelaine. Lady Jelaine, And she was episode 78. And even though her trial isn't until July, evidence <laughs> is due November 8th. And there's a court hearing where they have to present arguments that are due uh, December 21st. And so on October 30th, just a few days before we're recording, prosecutors said in a letter to Manhattan federal court judge that they will, this week that we're recording, give Maxwell's lawyers more than 1.2 million documents from devices seized from Jeffrey Epstein's residences. I think that's what is called burying the other side in mm-hmm. evidence. And they say they've already turned over more than 350,000 pages of documents, including search warrants, subpoena returns, and some records related to law enforcement investigations of Epstein. Defense lawyers have complained since Maxwell's July arrest that prosecutors are slow-walking the turnover of evidence the defense needs to prepare for its arguments. Hmm. Quote, Summer is gone, winter is coming, and the government has failed to make good on its promises, the lawyers wrote. The lawyer said in an October 23rd letter to the trial judge that prosecutors had promised substantial production of evidence would occur quickly, but so far it's been substantial in size, but not in substance. And they said about mm-hmm. one-fourth of the documents turned over so far relate to materials from civil litigation to which Maxwell was a party, and that includes that deposition that was released a few weeks ago. And the remainder relate largely to Epstein and have nothing to do with the 1994 to 1997 time period of the conspiracy alleged in the charges against Julian Maxwell. In their letter, prosecutors call the defense claims factually and legally incorrect quote contrary to the defense's suggestion the government has made numerous productions consistent with the discovery schedule in this case and is working diligently to continue Mm, to meet the discovery deadlines in the case they wrote and you know well i think she's guilty as fuck i still think the defense lawyers have a have a point there and um prosecutors also disputed defense claims that maxwell did not have adequate access to evidence at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, where she's held without bail. Prosecutors said she has access to the materials 13 hours a day, longer than any other inmate. And just one last note, when her deposition from the Jeffrey Epstein suit by Virginia Geoffrey, Maxwell's deposition was finally re- released, and the only real takeaway is she denies that she ever, her cured, underage girls for him to sexually assault. And so those are my updates.
0: Okay. Thank you. Do you have any updates? Uh, yes, I do have an update. Oh, what a hard. episode 29 <laughs> Wicked Bad Chemistry. Ah. Oh, my God. I think Maggie Mulvihill from the Boston Globe is probably as sick of, of these cases as me because it seems like she's the one who I always read. The update is on Sonia Farrakh, who we spoke about in episode 29. And then we talked about that Netflix series, and I don't know what episode that was. And yes, we that talked was about her some fairly
1: more. recently. yeah.
0: Annie Dukin was a lab, a chemist in the Boston area, who falsified positive results in order to convict people of drug offenses. Sonia Farak was a lab worker in Western Massachusetts who also falsified results, but she did it so she could do like every single drug that was <laughs> came Excellent through lab. the lab. I know. But seriously, she had no... She didn't really care what she did. She did whatever drug she was available She was like a kid
1: in a candy store.
0: I mean, I feel bad. She obviously know, has I a shouldn't. problem. Yes. I... As a result of these two women, almost 40,000 cases have been thrown out. Of Convictions have been thrown out in Massachusetts. And this latest article is just saying that more of them are being thrown out. And part of the reason for that is Sonia Farrakh also worked in the Boston area lab before she went to Western Massachusetts. Because of Ferox issues in Western Massachusetts, the state was supposed to investigate what she did while she was at the Hinton Lab, which is the one that Annie Dukin worked in. Um, the Inspector General Glenn Kuna at the time, well, in 2019, he did the, an investigation because it was based on all these lawsuits because all these defense attorneys were filing lawsuits. They found that Annie Dukin was supposedly the only sole bad actor in that lab and Sonia had done nothing wrong while she worked there. There's a lot of evidence that she did falsify evidence while she was there too because of individual cases having convictions being thrown out the supreme judicial court of massachusetts found that the state has to reinvestigate Uh and more cases are going to be thrown out uh. and we talked about this a little bit. Annie Ducan was convicted in two thousand and thirteen, and I think Sonia was two thousand and fourteen So in all these years, these convictions are being thrown have been thrown out besides convictions being thrown out, we are talking about how defendants have to pay court costs and they have to pay fines. Those have to be they need to be compensated for those. So that is it's millions and millions of dollars because of these two lab workers. We we've already talked about this, not just their fault, although they are the bad actors, but the fact that there was no desire to really investigate Sonia Rock because they already had Annie Dukin messing stuff up. And then with Sonia, it was going to cost the state so much money. I think they just kind of like yeah. tried to sweep it under the rug. But people were falsely convicted Yeah, evidence that was manufactured. You just can't have that. So- Right. Basically my update is the same old shit that's been going on. It's just more more people. Right. it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger.
1: Right. And the fact too, especially like that not especially, but that documentary that was very in detail, yes. it was almost a given that Sonia didn't start doing stuff till she went out to Western Massachusetts. I know. She was and doing it before. The fact that she was doing it before it really complicates things and
0: Okay, Superior Court judge in April in his ruling, he wrote, the absence of a proper investigation here should not stand because the state did not. They didn't do an investigation. They just right. kind of said, "Yeah, she's fine." And I'm not saying that everybody that was convicted is a perfect person or innocent. But you, we don't know, and you cannot convict people on faulty evidence, right. and then those convictions can't stand. Right.
1: And the, just, and the right. And the irony of it is, people who are innocent were convicted on false evidence, and also people who did much less, or the charges against them were much less than what she was doing, were convicted, but the the court system or the, you know, the whole system didn't care about those people not being treated fairly by the judicial system because they didn't want to deal with the person who was actually committing greater crimes.
0: I know, know? I know. So, it's just one of those... Uh, episodes that will keep on giving me back updates which is why i did one from almost 200 years ago last time because little we won't find any updates on her right you're going to be doing the presentation today and i don't Mm -hmm. know what it is so i'm very excited
1: i think you will very it's like name that tune i think you will very quickly know you'll also be excited about it so yeah let me know the minute i will that you know okay Okay, so I should just start, right? Okay, spoiler. Just start, right? Spoiler alert: today's story already. Well, that's when you have a spoiler alert. Today's story does not have a murder; it could have very easily, but it doesn't. But it does have so many of those elements that make a story fun, especially a main one. There's, of course, at least one. Yes, at least one controlling male asshole, possibly more, sex, small town sensibilities, a variety of jailhouse snitches, really dumb criminals, and the kind of courthouse dialogue that makes Maine trials so special. (laughs) It may not be the worst crime ever committed, but I thought at the time, and I feel now doing it, that it captures our hometown of Augusta, Maine, and the surrounding area just so well. And while this story was briefly in the national spotlight twice, my information comes almost entirely from the Morning Sentinel of Waterville, Maine, the Kennebec Journal of Augusta, Maine, and they were both there from the beginning to the end and also the Bangor Daily News of Bangor, Maine. One issue was that a changeover in content management systems at the Kennebec Journal and Morning Sentinel shortly after this happened makes it virtually impossible to find any of the early articles and some of the later ones. I did use newspapers.com. Neither of those papers are on it, but the Bangor Daily News is, and fortuitously they had this weird Oh, sh- I didn't know that. sharing agreement for a while where the Bangor Daily News was printing articles from the KJ and the Morning Sentinel, and so I was actually able to find some of their articles in the Bangor Daily News. But I really miss the Maine State Library being open. um, I know. Because there's nothing like those newspaper archives. And so let's get started. And as I said, Becky, I know I'll probably be no more than three sentences into this. that. When you know, but Robert Richards and Shirley Rogers, two paramedics with the Belfast Ambulance Company, were driving their ambulance east on Route 3, just outside of Augusta, Maine, a little before 1 a.m., on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2009. The two had taken a patient to Maine Medical Center in Portland and the route back to Belfast is up 295 to Augusta. Then you get on Route 3, which is a two-lane road like all Maine state routes are that connects the middle of the state to Belfast on the coast. And as I said, it's rural, dotted with small towns and villages. They were driving through Vassalboro, Right outside of augusta one of those small towns when they saw an orange glow behind a building up on a grassy rise
0: ah, do you know I think what it, i know
1: okay i think so okay the building was a one-time motel that had a variety of businesses before it became vacant several years before but that february a coffee shop had opened up yes there. richards turned the ambulance around and they pulled up the long curved entrance drive to the building though they were in kennebec county They radioed the fire into their own dispatch in Waldo County and began taking photos of the fire. Then Richards, the ambulance driver, noticed a pickup truck parked at the former motel and realized someone was in there. He and Rogers banged on the doors, waking up owner Donald Crabtree, 50, his two daughters, their boyfriends, and... Their 4 four-month-old babies. It's funny that the daughters were twins, and each of them had a four-month-old baby. Aww. Isn't that sweet? And they lived in apartments fashioned out of the former motel. All seven got out safely. By then, Morris Perry, a lieutenant with Vassalboro's Volunteer Fire Department, was on the scene. Quote, I could see that at that stage the fire was inside. It was rolling and venting out. It had burned through the wall and was venting out the top, he said. Vassalboro, like most towns of Maine, had a volunteer fire department, and he had to wait for the town's fire apparatus to get there before he could do much of anything. It eventually took 50 firefighters from eight communities to put out the fire. By the time the fire was out, the former motel building and attached coffee shop were a complete loss. Normally, a fire like that would just make the local news of that. This one made national and international headlines. Because this wasn't just any coffee shop. This was the View Topless Coffee Shop. That's right. Which had opened in February to what immediately became international fanfare. Yes. And I'm not exaggerating.
0: It and was, I remember at yep. the time.
1: And yes, it's just what it sounds like. The waitresses, and let's be fair, a couple waiters, were yes, topless. Yes,
0: they were wait- waiters.
1: Only a couple and they weren't the popular. And I,
0: I was living in Hollowell at the time and I remember somebody I knew online asked me to please go there mm. and tell them what it was like because they didn't live in Maine. and mm, I All promised- they had to do was go online. Yeah, but they wanted somebody yeah, to know. experience it. Uh, and I said I would, but I, I never did. Now, I never will. And no, you go won't. On As you can imagine,
1: it caused that amused kind of stir that you were just kind of talking about, that things like that cause Small town in a rural state is thrown into the news in an uproar by something folks in the big city would probably take more in stride. And there were tits, naked ones, which, of course was the whole point. The town, with a population back then, similar actually to what it is now of about 4,300, didn't have an ordinance that prevented nudity. My guess is they'd never thought they'd need one. And the shop, which only served coffee and donuts, was doing well at the time of the fire. They had some weird pricing thing that I can't remember well. I remember it just being confusing to me, but it was something like $3 for the first cup of coffee and then like $20 for the second or something like that. You know, because people would sit there all day and leer over their one cup of coffee. Ugh. Uh, in any case, as I said, it was doing well. So well, in fact, that just hours before the fire, Crabtree, the owner, had been before the Vassalboro Planning Board, seeking to extend the hours of the shop and make it into a strip club. Ugh. Crabtree, hours after the fire, told Glenn Adams of the Associated Press that he was determined to reopen, even though he wasn't insured. It was immediately clear at the scene that the fire was arson. A red plastic gas can was lying on the grass, and obviously, to the arson investigators, gas had been splashed on the outside of the building where the fire had started. And the question hung in the air, like the acrid smoke from the remains of the Grandview topless coffee shop. Who would want to burn it down? Who but, indeed? But before it was we me. Answer, yeah, no. I didn't
0: like that $20 friend coffee a $20 second cup. Coffee.
1: Before we answer who wanted to burn down the Grandview Topless Coffee Shop, let's look at the short but lively history of the Grandview Topless Coffee Shop. Ooh. On January 6, 2009, the Kennebec Journal first reported the plans for the coffee shop Crabtree was going before the town planning board that day, the day the story appeared, for a business permit. The motel was one of those you see all over Maine, and probably all over the country. Built in the middle part of the last century, they're one story, with outdoor entrances to each room. This one had a bigger section in the middle for a restaurant. The entire building had a log cabin-like exterior, and the restaurant had most recently been Mac Daddy's Pub at the Fat Cat Grill, which had hmm. closed three or four years before. It wasn't clear when it last operated as a motel, but I think it was a long rem- time.
0: It was a long time, but like, I remember yeah. it being a motel in the 80s. Yeah. Right.
1: Reporter Susan Cover, who was later city editor when I came up to work there, wrote, Neighbors who live near the Grandview Motel, which could soon be offering a grand view of another type, offered mixed opinions on the plan to turn the old motel into a coffee shop with topless waitresses. Ugh. Cover, Sue Cover, talked to neighbors for that first story. And at the time, it was just your typical small-town newspaper story. No clue of what was to come. For instance, Becky Young, who lived on Mudgett Hill Road, which was a dirt road that went from Route 3 up behind the building into the woods, said there was a lot of unwanted traffic when the building operated as a bar. This is a rural town, she said. People move here to be quiet. She was not in favor of a topless coffee shop. Sue Cover hmm. wrote, "I think it would b- bring a bad crowd," she said. But mm-hmm. Mike Preventure, who told Cover he'd lived on Mudget Hill Road for the past 20 years, said he was okay with the plan and hoped whatever happened, the owner stuck with it for years to come. Apparently a bar there before, it's not clear if it was Mac Daddy's or one before that had strippers because he said of the topless aspect, there were entertainment gals there before and it didn't seem like it was problematic. <laughs> Neighbor Randy McKeel said, I don't care what they do, they're just trying to make a living. Planning board chairman Virginia Brackett told Sue that the town didn't have the authority over what the staff wore, just whether the business had adequate lighting, parking, and septic, that type of thing. When the planning board met that night, more than 50 town residents showed up, which, if you've never never been to a small town planning board meeting, and I've been to many, I can tell you that's about 47 more people than would normally show up. On a good night. According to the newspaper story about the meeting, most of those who attended were not in favor. As someone who's covered many planning board meetings in Maine and other northern New England towns over the decades, I can tell you that many probably preface the remarks by saying how long they've lived in town, mm-hmm. like, like that gives them some added authority that other speakers don't have. People always say, I've lived in town all my life, or I've lived here since 1992, or, you know, it's funny because you just know people are going to say that. Alas, I couldn't find anything but an Associated Press story Uh that likely boiled down some of the original KJ stories. So no quotes like that, but we can all picture them. Planners reiterated at the meeting they had no power over whether the staff at the coffee shop wore tops or not. They only had authority over things like parking, traffic, and signs. And Crabtree said he planned to open in 30 days. And on February 25th, 2009... The Morning Sentinel in Waterville carried an article that piqued the interest of national and ultimately international media. The story was written by Scott Monroe, who I later worked with. Accompanying the story was a tasteful photo by Joe Phelan of the Kennebec Journal. The two newspapers were in cities about 15 miles apart, so they share resources sometimes. And the photo shows the back of a topless waitress at a table with two typical Maine guys in their 60s baseball caps and work clothes smirking and leering Ugh. at her. That's my interpretation. The coffee <laughs> shop the coffee shop had just opened the day before. Scott has a nice touch with irony and other things, so here's some of what the story said. On Tuesday morning a small sign hung in front of the log cabin style building listing the hours six AM to six PM. The outside windows were covered with promotional posters for New England coffee. Up the entrance ramp to the front door another sign, over 18 only, and another at the door. No cameras, no touching, cash only. A man in a white dress shirt kept watch at the front door. Inside, two men sipped coffee at a booth. The rest of the tables were empty. There were 15 tables with room enough for 58 people. Also inside were three topless women, one topless man, and owner Donald Crabtree in a dress shirt and tie. Blue Oyster cults don't fear the Reaper. <laughs> Brothers Dick and Renee Broshu of Augusta, ages 60 and 59, said they decided to stop by the Grandview Coffee Shop after hearing about it from friends. Both men are retired. I really hope it works, Dick Brochu said of the business. It's different. I kind of like it. If you don't like it, I say don't come in. Stay away. (laughs) Implying that criticism of the Kashi shop had been overblown, Renee Brochu said, The evil is in your head. Mm. Eight customers, all men, stopped by the coffee shop between 10 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. Tuesday. Staff members estimated that they had 50 to 60 customers on Monday despite a snowstorm. Of those customers, about eight were women, they said. Aside Hmm. from the Brochu brothers, the other customers in the shop Tuesday morning declined to give their names... Or to comment, topless waitress Susie Wiley, and I'm not sure why he had to say topless waitress because (laughs) I think it's implied, but anyway, 23 of Farmingdale said she went for the job because it was something different and said she has worked in coffee shops since she was a teenager. As whether the shop is degrading to women, Wiley said, no, I love it. I find it very empowering, not degrading. For now, the menu at the shop is slim. Cups of New England coffee for $3 each and donuts from Chase Farm Bakery in Whitefield for $2 each. Crabtree said he might offer more food if business picks up. Elvis Thompson, 32, of Brunswick, was the lone mail waiter at the coffee shop Tuesday morning, though he said there are two other mail waiters. Thompson, topless and wearing black boots and black shorts, said he was laid off from another job two weeks ago and then saw an advertisement for the coffee shop. And I just want to remind people this was at the height of the great recession in 2009 so people were That's looking for right during the first day monday thompson said he waited on two women one of whom told him she had been opposed to the business but now she thinks it's great <laughs> topless waitress chris kelly 43 of wyndham again topless waitress why doesn't he just say waitress said her previous restaurant experience was managing a pizzeria in hawaii kelly said criticism of the shop is ridiculous it's just a body part she said There are more serious issues to worry about in this country than something like this.
0: Well, I give him credit for hiring someone 43.
1: Yeah. Kelly said she gets along with all her co-workers and customers. We're one big happy family. We'll get to Mm. his hiring requirements in a bit. Contacted (laughs) on Tuesday, Vassalboro resident Paula Furbush, who was critical of the coffee shop when it was proposed to the planning board, said she had not realized the business had opened. I definitely think it's not a good idea. I've lived in town my whole life, and we've oh. never had anything like this, Furbush said. Wow. Lisa Breton, a resident for 23 years, said she was surprised the coffee shop had opened up. I don't believe it's going to pan out. Not in a small community like this, Breton said. People move to these small towns because they don't want to deal with bars and adult video stores. And a topless coffee shop. It's important for towns to have an ordinance written so things like this can't happen.
0: Oh wow well, Crabtree...
1: Crabtree, the owner, said he does not pay his staff wages, and I'll get to that in a minute. All their earnings come from customer tips, mostly ranging from $5 to $20. On Tuesday morning, Kelly brought coffee to a male customer who gulped down about half of the cup in a couple minutes, handing Kelly a $100 bill and left without saying a word. Hmm. Topless waitress, Ginny Labrie, (laughs) 34, of Palermo, wore fluorescent pink nail polish and has a tattoo of a rose on her arm. I'm glad Scott was looking at her arm and not. LaBrie said she had previous experience as a store manager and used to work in dance clubs. She said she enjoys chatting with people, and she has received many compliments from customers, such as, as, you're pretty, nice body, nice tattoos, and you're very colorful. Hmm. I haven't had anybody leave without a smile yet, she said. Crabtree said he interviewed 150 people for the positions and narrowed the field to 10. Hmm. Before I go any farther, just let me put my two cents about what I think of this. Oh,
0: you never have opinions on anything.
1: Right. I think women have a right to display their bodies any way they want, but maybe I'm old fashioned. It's still a turnoff to me when they're exploited this way, and just because the women may not feel exploited doesn't mean they're not. It's a shop for horny men to leer at women's tits. Gross. Face it, that's the whole point. That's why it got the press, and all the headlines and tongue-in-cheek stories support that. Obviously, the fact he had topless male waiters doesn't really make a difference because male breasts don't carry the same connotation female ones do. It's a false equivalency. My issue is that the exploitation that, among other things, validates objectification of women which is the underpinning of a lot of misogynistic crime and the fact crimes against women particularly sex crimes isn't taken seriously mm-hmm. i'm not saying women in their bodies cause sex crime i'm saying that exploiting men's purient attitude toward the nude female body and couching it in a kind of jokey look at the tits context trivializes issues around sexual assault if this if that makes any sense mm-hmm. i don't I don't mean to be such a Debbie Downer when everyone is having so much fun looking at and talking about naked tits, but there you go. And anyway, this was at the height of the Great Recession, and I know people were desperate for work. The fact he didn't pay them an hourly wage, but they worked for tips by his own admission in several subsequent stories just makes it more exploitive. And to clarify, I don't want to go into a rabbit hole on it, but in 2009, the minimum wage in Maine was 7.25 dollars an hour. Employees with tipped staff were required to pay employees 3.63 dollars an hour, no matter what they got in tips. Mm-hmm. If the tips exceeded the regular minimum wage by $0.50 cents an hour, employers could take a, quote, tip credit, which in Maine was <sighs> 50% with a maximum of 512 an hour. Anyone who made more than $20 in tips a month came under this law. So Crabtree was required to pay them by the hour no matter what their tips were. The fact he came right out and said he didn't, and no one seems to have looked into it, shows how distracted they were by the naked tits. I just feel it's important to point out wage theft whenever I I see it. I know, it's horrible. And finally, my uh, final complaint about all this is on top of everything else, nudity and food together have always had a kind of yuck factor for me. So that is, that's how I feel about that. I just wanted to get all that out. Okay. Okay, after that story appeared, as I said, the Na- I'm sure AP picked it up, and the national and international press gleefully picked it up. Obviously, to me, it was the small-town factor. If this coffee shop was in New York City, for instance, I don't think it would have gotten a fraction of the attention. And, of course, you know, naked tits. For instance, a Boston.com headline was, A Shot of Sexpresso." And here's an example from CNN, which chose to show, oh, please. The, the, I know, which chose to show the topless male in a photo is from CNN. The headline was topless coffee shop, a hit in small town, Maine. And the story said, it's a rough time for business, but one entrepreneur may have found the recipe for success. Many local residents were right over the idea of combining coffee and nudity. But Donald Crabtree saw a profitable business venture. Quote, I know what people want, he said. People like nudity, and coffee is profitable. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sure, I'd start a coffee shop, but I'd be out of work in a week. It was probably supposed to be coffee isn't profitable. But anyway, the flood of job applications, more than 150, for Grandview topless coffee shop reflected the rough job market. This is still CNN.
0: Crabtree mm-hmm.
1: hired 10 women and 5 men under stringent requirements, including friendliness and, what he considered most important, that the wait staff treat everyone equally. Hmm. We didn't hire tens, he said, referring to appearance. We hired everyone from skinny to big-boned women. Of the 15 selected, most have been laid off from other jobs in the past few months. So, this is morning again. Ginny Labrie, who was also quoted in the Sentinel story, told CNN she applied to several restaurants before being hired at the Grandview. All the restaurants declined to hire her because of her lack of experience. I'm so excited, so excited to have a job, she said. Crabtree also sees his new business as a temporary fix for customers struggling through tough economic times. The economy is so bad, Crabtree said. Everyone's losing their homes, their ties, everything they own. People leave here happy and can't wait to come back. It's nice to see people smile again. And Maureen again, um, naked tits. But anyway. I don't re-
0: understand. Yeah.
1: No, well, I don't no, understand my you- boobs. Well, you're not a man.
0: As I, I remember... I used- At the time, making the joke that they wouldn't hire me because my boobs would be knocking cups of coffee all (laughs) around. Me too. Other articles were in a similar vein, some more
1: tongue in cheek than others, but most pretending to be appreciative of the economic angle when all they Mm. really were drawn to was, hey, look, it's ladies' naked boobs. Mm hmm. Vassalboro, of course, wasn't going to get caught with its pants down, so to speak. <laughs> Although that doesn't really, because it's not pants. But anyway, by March, less than a month after the coffee shop opened, the board of selectmen had drafted an adult entertainment ordinance banning nudity at all businesses in town.
0: Mm, please.
1: Once approved by selectmen, voters would take it up at town meeting on June 8th. And for those of you unschooled in it, town meeting is the quaint New England form of government where once a year the town's residents get together to vote on the town budget and town ordinances. Mm -hmm. And so the selectmen can't pass that themselves. The town would have to. Mary Sabins, the select board member who proposed the ordinance, said it was in response to the Grandview. Still, the Grandview would be grandfathered, which means it would still be allowed to operate as was. That said, Crabtree and three of his waitresses showed up at the Selectman's meeting on March 11th to protest the ordinance. On April 14th, 2009, less than two months after he opened, Crabtree said he planned to apply to expand the club's hours, which at the time were 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. He wanted to expand them from 6 a.m. to 1 a.m. and to increase the capacity to 300 and make it a strip club. While the coffee shop would be grandfathered under the proposed nudity ordinance, the expanded strip club, which would be a change of use, likely would have had more hoops to go through. In early May, the town changed the proposed ordinance to, instead of banning nudity at businesses, restricting it to one area of town. And that is the area um, Crabtree's business was in, I believe, though no articles specified that. Selectmen and residents at earlier meetings said they were concerned an outright ban on nudity would violate the First Amendment. Though any lawyer could tell them that that's not the case. Though while there is case precedent that such bans don't violate the First Amendment, Maine around then was going through kind of a spring's awakening, of topless awareness, which would culminate a year later when topless parades were held in Portland and Farmington. Among other places, I remember, remember those, the topless too. parades. It, yes. it came and went pretty fast. This wasn't the same as banning topless businesses, though. It was protesting the double standard that allows men to go topless in public and not women. And the coverage of those was similar to the coverage of the Grand View—kind of wink, wink, nod, nod—with a lot of leering men slavering <laughs> as they looked at naked
0: tits. And, um, and, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say that our niece Adele oh, yeah. um, came up. <laughs> to do uh shopping for her prom dress one weekend of these topless parades so they were in the old port and mom who was in her 70s at yeah. the time was bringing adele shopping and adele's two little friends from and they were like school. 17 and Yep, th- they came out of a shop in a parade of top naked you know, men went by, yeah, and some and men were like, ah! yeah, right. but the, uh, it was in April, it was cold. Yeah. That's yeah. what I don't well, understand. Anyways. Well,
1: I, that would just make the men like it more, wouldn't oh. it?
0: Oh.
1: Frankly, as someone who always has to brace for the first warm weather of spring when Maine's men take off their shirts to mow their lawns,
0: <laughs> I'm like,
1: I'd be happy if more men kept their shirts on and maybe that was the universal thing, but to each their own. Anyway, that's a topic for another day. The new ordinance in Vassalboro, according to a May 1st, 2009 Morning Sentinel article, said, and the reason I'm going on about this ordinance is will become clearer soon. The new ordinance proposal says it's same is not to prohibit free speech or target sexually oriented businesses, but rather to address the negative secondary effects of such businesses. Those effects are described as perceived decreases in value in residential and commercial properties and the way in which the businesses can adversely affect the character and quality of life in a town and can be incompatible with surrounding uses. Thus, the ordinance aims to regulate and annually license sexually oriented businesses, avoiding, quote, the blighting or downgrading of the surrounding areas. It prevents sexually oriented businesses from being less than 500 feet from the property line of a business which caters to the general public and less than 1,000 feet from lot lines of residences, schools, daycare centers, and places of worship, public parks, and recreational areas. It was eight pages long and there were fines attached. Crabtree's strip club proposal was originally to go before the planning board the same night as the new adult entertainment ordinance in May, but he didn't file his application on time. So it was delayed until the June 2nd planning board meeting. At this point, Crabtree was having some other issues with the coffee shop. He made it for capacity of 58 customers based on what he'd been told by the state fire marshal's office was allowed for a building that size. But Vassalboro Code Enforcement Officer Paul Mitnick said the town had only approved capacity for 21 people. Mitnick said Crabtree had to remove 37 seats until he got additional approval from the town. And he said Crabtree had been pretty cooperative about things so far. The next time... The View topless coffee shop was in the news was May 23rd, 2009. Police were called to the shop after a report that one of the waitresses was out in the parking lot without a top on. A Maine State Police Trooper responded to the report. (laughs) I know, I bet he did. (laughs) What? And no one was charged. The matter was turned over to the district attorney for review, the Sentinel reported, and I never saw another word about it.
0: I don't think it's against the law, though. Well, it's not clear,
1: the story said, if nudity in the parking lot was prohibited. It's also not clear what she was doing outside without a top on. Well, I found a blog post that said she was lounging outside. It seems like that was an assumption by the blogger. Just a week after that, on June 2nd, 2009, Donald Crabtree went before the planning board to seek his expansion to a strip club. One thing I did find online was the minutes from that meeting, and memo to towns like mine who think keeping actual minutes is impossible if Vassalboro can do it. So can we. These were pretty good minutes. Uh, Crabtree had scaled back the plans for a 300-person strip club according to the minutes, and looking at the minutes, things were pretty run-of-the-mill that night. Aside from the board, the public included 11 people, including Mary Grow, who at the time was a sometimes correspondent for the Kennebec Journal, and she also wrote for the Town Lines Weekly, Scott Monroe from the Sentinel, Scott Episcopo from Channel 13, and a handful of other people. And it's funny, the Minutes uses mostly their first names. The Minutes say, originally, Donald was proposing additional seating capacity and possibly adding meals and entertainment in the form of music and dancing waitresses. However, he indicated that he has scaled back his expansion and wants to remain a minor project. He said he was here for requesting that the hours of operation be extended, that parking for his employees could be allowed out back, and deliveries for oil, propane, and the trash dumpster be allowed out back from Mudgett Hill Road access. Donald indicated that he also wanted to ask about allowing the waitresses to dance to music that would be provided from CDs. He and the board mused over whether that would fall under the new ordinance for adult-only businesses that was scheduled to be voted on a week later at town meeting. The feeling was... It would be a change of use since just the coffee shop was permitted and the ordinance would apply. What followed wasn't anything out of the ordinary from any other planning board meeting, and this is reading directly from the minutes. Ginny asked what would change outside, and Donald said nothing. Doug asked about screening out in the back, and Donald indicated that there was a tree line. Sally asked about employees and food preparation. Donald indicated that there are three employees a shift, and the food was only pastries and was prepared in a microwave oven. Someone in the audience asked about alcohol, and Donald said that he was proposing no alcohol. Donald indicated that he wanted to extend his current hours of 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. to 1 a.m. Ginny indicated that he would have to fill out a new application and a new map. The additional employee parking should be indicated on the map, along with a dumpster and its screening. Dick Bradstreet asked if the change in hours was a change in use. Ginny didn't think that it did. Kathy asked if the hours of the new ordinance would affect this proposal. It would not if the proposal was not regulated by the new ordinance, they thought. Doug asked to explain the seating issue with the coffee shop. Paul passed around some photos to the board taken inside the coffee shop. He said technically the tables have bench seats that can fit four per table, but typically only one or two people sit at each table since four would be a tight squeeze and people that do not know each other are unlikely to sit together. Paul required Donald to take out two tables. There are currently 13 tables there with 25 seats and an additional space for a handicapped person on a wheelchair. Ginny asked about additional seats, and Donald said he wasn't proposing any. Ginny said that if you want the two tables back, the new application would be the time to ask. The application should also address noise and lights for the additional hours. Doug indicated that screening for the back parking could be needed. Pam Yurkowski, and I think she was a member of the audience, asked if the issue of whether the dancing was a new use had been decided. Ginny said they hadn't cleared that up and probably weren't qualified to answer the question. Paul indicated that they would have to get a legal opinion from an attorney. Sue Linscott, another audience member, asked the people in the neighborhood should have the right to know about the change in hours and the dancing before the next meeting. Paul indicated that the abutter notification would have to be done, and Ginny agreed. It was decided that the new application would have to include all the changes, and these would have to be addressed in the performance standards. The board decided to schedule the next planning board meeting for July 14th, due to Paul being on vacation July 7th. The meeting adjourned at 8:30 p.m. It was four and a half hours later that Robert Richards and Shirley Rogers, the two Belfast paramedics, discovered the fire. Our old friend Steve McCoslin, spokesman for the Maine Department of Public Safety, oh, said later, Steve. "I know. Well, he he's he's working for Nancy Marshall's PR place really good now, for him. crisis communication." Said later that the fire was arson and said evidence had been taken to the state police crime lab for analysis. And once again, the Grandview was making national and international headlines. Most of the stories making the assumption that someone unhappy there was a topless coffee shop in town had taken action. The lead to a Boston Herald story was typical. Quote, It appears at least one person felt a topless coffee shop in Maine was too hot.
0: Oh, God.
1: A June 10 blog post by someone named Louise on a site perhaps ironically called shadowproof.com and I say it's ironic because there isn't a lot of transparency on the site, including who the bloggers are, wrote, The Grandview did extraordinarily well. So well that Crabtree decided to speak with the town planning board about expanding the business. That was too much for someone locally who decided to set fire that same night to the Grandview. This is Maureen again. I will say, granted, some reactions to the fire would lead to that assumption. Glenn Adams of AP reported the day after the fire talking to residents Richard Flick estimated that 97% of Vassalboro's 4,200 residents oppose the topless cafe. He hopes Crabtree doesn't rebuild. Sherry Perry, also a Vassalboro, said, I'm a believer and I'm a Christian and I don't want this trash in my backyard. No good can come from it. But owner Donald Crabtree told reporters he hadn't received any threats. And obviously, there was no big outcry at the planning board meeting a few hours before the fire. CNN wrote later on the morning of the fire, the blaze, quote, consumed the risque small town business. They talked to Vassalboro Fire Chief Eric Rowe, who described the flames as severe and said the building was a total loss. And as I said earlier, Crabtree had not insured the building.
0: Now, can I have a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have a business, do you... Do you have to have insurance? I would think to get a business permit, you
1: would have to show proof of insurance. That's what I thought, too. That's, but, that's my know. assumption. But I know there are other businesses in Maine where there have been fires, and mm-hmm. they haven't had insurance. So maybe mm. it's a different up to each town what it its ordinances okay. are. Okay. So Crabtree told Glenn Adams of the Associated Press that he'd put $277,000 into buying and renovating the building. A lobsterman, he'd sold his house in Ellsworth, about 90 minutes east near Acadia National Park, when he bought the property, and he stored all his equipment and stuff there, and it was all lost. He told Adams, though, that he was determined to reopen. Quote, I'll keep going. I've got some girls out of work, and I'm going to do all I can to get in there. And I'm like, hmm, what about the guys? Out of work. What about the male wait staff? I I feel like they kind of fell by the wayside. <laughs> he did say though that he had ten female and three males. Glenn Adams also wrote: While many people dropped by Wednesday to show support, it was clear that others were pleased about the fire. Said Paul Crabtree, the owner's brother, who came to the scene Wednesday morning. "Quote: It's sad to see people driving by and acting happy about it," he said. Steve Cooper of Vassalboro stopped by to peruse the damage while passing by on his motorcycle. He had never been in the shop, he said, but said it was a shame the fire put people out of work. I don't think the business was doing any harm, he said. A waitress at the shop, Krista McIntyre, said the job was the best she'd ever had. She hopes the fire doesn't put the shop out of business. Quote, We should keep on going, get back up, and make it an even bigger place, she said. McIntyre, and remember that name told CNN, I really like it here. We weren't hurting anyone. I don't know why someone would do something like this. This was just a good, innocent business, she said. Every worker was just trying to take care of themselves and make a living, just trying to live like everybody else. Within days, Crabtree had reopened, more or less, under a tent. The waitresses wore bikini tops and on cold days, sweatshirts. Quote, They have car payments, house payments, kids. They're volunteering their time, and they're still getting tips, and they're getting checks in the mail from people. One girl got a $10 check from a lady out of state, Crabtree said. Again, illegal not to pay people who are working for a for-profit business. On June 8th, a few days later, at town meeting, 200 voters approved the adult entertainment ordinance. The arson fire was being investigated by State Fire Marshal's Office, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the Kennebec County Sheriff's Department, and the Vassalboro Police Department. On June 16th, State Fire Marshal Sergeant Ken Grimes told the Morning Sentinel they were working on some leads, but Hannett narrowed it down to a suspect. With it determined arson, but the police not talking about any leads, as I said, the assumption persisted that it was someone who had an issue with the coffee shop being in town. The shadowproof blog included a column written as a letter to the arsonist, and I couldn't find it online, so it's not clear who wrote it, so I'm not sure who I'm about to mock, but here's the letter, or column rather. Dear Mr. Hot Stuff... Maybe you knew that owner Donald Crabtree, his twin daughters, their boyfriends, and two infants were all asleep inside when you set the place ablaze just after midnight on Wednesday. Or maybe you were too hell-bent on burning down the coffee shop to even wonder whether you were putting any lives in danger. Either way, you're out of your mind. Had it not been for the ambulance crew that awoke Crabtree and his family as the flames spread, you could be looking at multiple murder charges right now. And this is Maureen again. I agree with that. Uh, Back to the column. Monday morning, less than a week after you redefined the word coward, Crabtree was back in business and promising he'd rebuild. And here's a quote from Crabtree in it. To all the people around Maine who are having a hard time and losing everything, don't give up. It ain't the end of the world. We're here in a tent, but we'll be back. And back to the letter... I forgot to mention the clear plastic gerbil cage salvaged from the fire, no, it wasn't occupied, that now sits next to the coffee machines under the canopy. It's been transformed into a donation box, and this is really going to fry you. It was half full with cash less than three hours after the not-so-grand reopening Monday morning. Well, a few might secretly a- applaud your vigilantism, many more condemn it. As they sipped their coffee and chatted Monday, they talked about law and order and the freedom to decide for themselves whether topless waitresses are, shall we say, their cup of tea. And I do wish... <laughs> and I do wish I know who wrote that, but... Um, sorry it wasn't... Say- was it in the Press Herald, you said? Yes, but I couldn't find it online because it was 2009. I wonder the- if
0: it- Okay, yeah. And it the blog like poster
1: right. didn't seem to find a reason to actually who wrote that. Anyway, <laughs> oh. on August 15th, the Morning Sentinel reported that Crabtree had listed the property for sale. Scott Monroe wrote in the Morning Sentinel, and this isn't the whole article, just part of it, Crabtree won't say he's giving up on rebuilding the topless coffee shop business in Vassalboro. Still, he's ready to move on if he can sell the property, he said. We've done all our options and pretty much all of them fell through, Crabtree said. Everything's in the air. We're still trying a bunch of stuff out. We don't know if we're going to sell it or what. I'd like to find somebody to become somewhat of a partner in the business. Crabtree has vowed to rebuild the business and has been accepting donations that so far have totaled only a couple thousand dollars. If he can't rebuild the business, Crabtree said he may move out of state and establish the same business in a more populated area, try to expand the business bigger, start a franchise. Quote, maybe I can go somewhere where people won't look at you crooked, he said. Hmm. This is Maureen again. He apparently had no immediate takers because by November 2009, he told the KJ he was going to ask the planning board for a permit to open in a mobile home on the site. He eventually got the permission and did open in the mobile home. Over the course of the winter, several main towns put the wheels in motion for ordinances banning nude dancing and other nude things in their towns. What everyone except investigators weren't aware of was that very early in the investigation, months before, the investigation was narrowing in on a totally different suspect and motive. He didn't live in Vassalboro, and he wasn't some morally righteous anti-coffee shop crusader out to rob hard-working, labor-law-violating Don Crabtree and his half-naked staff out of a living. Rather, his motive was much more familiar to listeners of this podcast. A coercively controlling man pissed off that a woman he thought of as his wasn't doing what he wanted. Raymond Bellavance Jr., 48, in 2009, was not a name that had been publicly associated with the Grandview Topless coffee shop. Bellavance didn't live in Vassalboro. He lived in Augusta on Jefferson Street. Actually, I should say Jefferson Street's his last known address, which is in what's known as the Sand Hill neighborhood of Augusta, the French-Canadian section. Donald Crabtree knew who he was, though. In March 2009, a few weeks after the coffee shop opened, Bellevance showed up and demanded that Crabtree fire Bellevance's girlfriend, Krista McIntyre, one of the waitresses, the one who told CNN she didn't know who would do something like that, and she liked working there. Bellevance told Crabtree McIntyre had done something illegal. Apparently, he was more specific, but the newspaper either chose not to elaborate, or maybe the police didn't elaborate to the newspaper. But what Bellevance told Crabtree was basically that Krista McIntyre was using the coffee shop for sex work. Though I'm positive he didn't use that term. Crabtree, in an April 7, 2010 story in the Kennebec Journal, uh, a year later, told Scott Monroe that Bellevance told him if he didn't fire McIntyre, Bellavance would have him shut down. Crabtree said, I said I wouldn't fire her until I had evidence myself. I talked to her and she said it wasn't true, Crabtree recalled, and I told Bellevance to go right ahead and try it. That was the last dealing I ever had with him. Crabtree said he was pleased. Authorities finally had identified a suspect after nearly a year, but he remained perplexed about the case. I think Bella Vance was angry because she was working here making it on her own and he didn't like that, Crabtree said. I'm angry because I lost my whole life savings over something very stupid. I could have lost my kids and I lost a lot of money that night. Kennebec County Superior Court issued an arrest warrant for Bella Vance on the arson charge on April 5th, 2010. In the story, it says investigators say he is 5 foot 7 inches tall, weighs 150 pounds, is dark-haired and heavily tattooed, including images of skulls on both arms. Authorities asked that anyone with information on Bellavance's whereabouts call Maine State Police. And the reason they couldn't find him was because he had skipped the state. Authorities confirmed that Bellavance had been in jail at the Kennebec County Jail up, up until three days before the arrest warrant was issued for the arson case. According to Kennebec County Sheriff Randall Liberty... Bellevance entered the Kennebec County Jail on March 25th after a court hearing re- regarding $1,840 in unpaid fines for driving as a habitual offender. However, Bellavance was released from jail after making arrangements with the court to pay the fines, according to Liberty, who now, by the way, is Commissioner of the Department of Corrections. At the time, we knew the arson charges were close to being pending, and the investigation Gating officer was notified, Liberty said. Asked why Bellevance was released just days before the arson warrant was issued, Liberty said, I'm not sure what happened. Arson is a Class A felony among the most serious charges in Maine. Steve McCausland, the state police spokesman, said, The specifics of why he has been charged with arson is something we're not talking about publicly at this point, other than we did confirm his former girlfriend was a waitress there. We think that friends and associates know where he is, McCausland said, and hopefully some of them will give us a call or someone from the general public will recognize him. By spring 2010, nearly a year after the fire, though it will become clear later that they knew about Bellavance almost immediately, police were getting ready to charge Bellavance with arson. He was in Kennebec County Jail on the habitual offender charges while they got their ducks in a row. But he managed to pay his fines and get out. And while the sheriff told Monroe he wasn't sure what happened... I'll say, as Maureen, this is America. And though the justice system doesn't always work the way it should, when the guy pays his fines and he gets out, unless you charge him with something else, he can get out of jail. No shit, you can't just keep someone there. Right. He was released April 2nd, 2010, and the warrant was issued April 5th, 2010. By then, Bellavance was long gone. It took police a month to arrest him, and when they did, it was in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. They didn't say at the time exactly how they tracked him down, just that the state fire marshal's office and the Southern Maine Violent Crimes Task Force of the U.S. Marshal Service was instrumental. Crabtree said he was glad now they could find out what happened. I feel safer now, he said. Krista McIntyre, described in news stories variously as Bellavance's girlfriend and Bellavance's ex girlfriend, said she didn't know why he'd be in South Carolina and didn't know what to think about the whole thing. It's a lot to take in, she said. We'll just have to wait and see when it goes to court. A May 2010 article based on the affidavit for Bellavance's arrest shed a little more light. It said Bellavance used gasoline to burn the coffee shop down because he was angry with his girlfriend who was having an affair with the coffee shop's owner. In July 2010, Bellavance was indicted on two charges of arson, one related to destruction of property, the other endangering a life. The affidavit, which I sadly couldn't find online, is 19 pages, according to a July 2, 2010 Craig Crosby story in the Kennebec Journal. It said during the investigation they talked to two dozen witnesses, almost all of whom said Bellevance talked to them about burning down the coffee shop. The affidavit establishes that Raymond Bellavance was clearly agitated and became more agitated when he learned his girlfriend, and that's in quotes or brackets, so it might have said something else, was having a sexual relationship with the owner of the Grand View Topless Coffee Shop. Ken McMaster, the investigator for the state, says the affidavit establishes that prior to the fire, Raymond Bellavance had made statements that he was going to burn the Grand View Topless Coffee Shop and that... After the fire, Raymond Bellavance made statements that he had, in fact, burned the Grandview topless coffee shop. The waitresses, almost all of whom have criminal records, paint a picture of Bellavance as a man eager to maintain control over the woman with whom he was involved. I'm I'm reading from Craig Crosby's story, by the way. Bellavance showed up at the coffee shop in March 2009 and made a scene in an attempt to get McIntyre fired. McMaster said. A corporal with Kennebec County Sheriff's Department wrote in a report detailing the incident that Bellavance was angry about illegal activity he alleged McIntyre and, and Crabtree were conducting at the coffee shop, and as I mentioned a little while ago, that was alleged sex work. Hmm. Tara Mishu Bellevance, Raymond Bellavance is a strange wife. Interesting her, name. Yes, it's hyphen Bellavance.
0: Oh, I get it. Tara yeah. Mishu Bellavance. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Oh. Oh. You thought it was made like, it sound like Tara. Tara so well, I'm getting yeah, hungry. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm, said
1: her husband is controlling, possessive, and abusive with women that he is in a relationship with. Mishu mm. Bellavance recalled asking McIntyre whether she still worked at the coffee shop. Quote. According to Tara, and this is quoting McMaster and Craig Crosby's story in the affidavit, McIntyre said she was, and then Bella Vance interjected a statement, until I fucking burn it down, although fucking mm. is just F with a line, McMaster <laughs> said. When asked, Tara believed that Bella Vance was serious about the statement. And it's funny, it says that she was serious about the statement, because later you'll find out she says that she didn't think he was. But anyway, Bellavance pled not guilty on July 28th. He was being held on one million property or two hundred thousand cash bail and was forbidden from contacting Crabtree. His attorney at the time was J. Mitchell Flick. Assistant DA Steve Parker said Bellavance had an extensive criminal record going back to nineteen seventy nine. It would be more than a year later when the trial began in december twenty eleven, when everyone found out what actually happened when the Graham View Topless Coffee Shop burned and that's the the rest
0: of the story
1: right that's the end of part one (laughs) okay so you have a recommendation right yes i do but before you recommend i have to ask you did you watch the last episode of i'll be gone in the dark i
0: did i finished watching it does your rating change at all? Um, no, I don't think so. I think the last episode, two episodes were, um, were a different kind of a different feel, especially mm. the last one. But I don't think I'm going to change my rating okay. over it. But you had issues. You said I you had, had issues. issues. I would. So when I was watching them, I was trying to figure out what your well, issues were.
1: Well, I would have taken a point away had I been doing it for beating the drum
0: Based yeah. on
1: the final episode, which was all promotion for the book.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I
1: get, as you know, I get bored and impatient, especially in true crime things when they start, like, all the stuff, like the appearances and the book signings and the blah, blah, blah. And it's just, I, I want to hear about the murder and stuff. You know, the episode after the book gets published, it was just really fawning and gratuitous. I
0: thought it was a little bit... There were parts of it that I... I guess I'll give it a pass just because I think overall it was really good. Yeah. The way it was put together was... was good. But I thought that... um... See, I liked, like, the first five minutes when they
1: had Bonnie, his white, you know, the one yes you I know, was
0: very happy to see her the parts that I thought were good but the I felt reason like the that-
1: episode that episode just dropped like a set of keys after yeah I that. think
0: it, yeah I it wasn't I think they could have shortened a lot of that stuff abbreviated it but I'm still going to give it a pass because I was glad it was resolved right like you got to see Bonnie right and listen to her right but and-
1: then they had like the victims meeting Pat as well at crime Yeah, yeah, yeah and hugging yeah. him and yeah I feel like it's I don't know I just feel like it's indulgent and um, yeah
0: maybe oh no I, i'm not arguing no, with you i'm no, just i'm not going to take points and you know away how
1: it. it's it's the way i get when you get these like i stopped watching i was watching the Rebecca Zahow um one with billy jensen who by the way i'm adding another personal category any any documentary from now on or podcast that he's not like he's already doing some podcasts with billy jensen i'm automatically taking a point away okay that you know it's not retroactive so but like that Rebecca how one and that and I'm not rating it today or anything but I just want to mention before we get to your rating you know how impatient i get when people are driving around in cars talking on phones setting up meetings and then also having meetings that you can tell like they're just learning something when you can tell that they've they already know it you know what i mean and yes. and i feel like it's all this fluff that could be, you know, like that's what it, the, is it ma- the second Megan, I can't remember what it was. No, it was an innocent man. The last oh, yeah. episode or so when they had that young reporter and she's doing this driving around, talking on her phone, trying to set up meetings with people. And I'm like, I don't want to fucking see people driving around in their car, talking on their phone. I know.
0: I don't like that either. Um,
1: but anyway, so this isn't about me. It's about you. What are you rating today?
0: I am rating on HBO, the documentary Class Action Park. Ooh! And this is about an amusement park that ran from 1978 to 1996 called Action Park. I think it was Milford, New Jersey. It's only an hour and a half, and it's about this park. That this guy Mulvahill started, who was a failed some financial guy, I don't know. He decided he was going to buy these two ski resorts in New Jersey, which um, part of New Jersey that's near the New York border. I was going to say they, they have the ski hits, resorts. In New they Sh- do. Wow. There's a lot of pretty parts in New Jersey. No, I'm not um, saying
1: it's not pretty. I just don't think of there being I hills think the ski-
0: I think the ski season was pretty short. It doesn't have to be too high a hill. Like they have no. that one Lost Valley right. in Auburn. That's not yes. a very high hill. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, I, I mean. I mean, they weren't, you know. So anyways, yeah. he bought these two ski resorts and he decided he was going to make them into an a water park. And so this is about the story of the park. So I will start with... But I, I'm guessing okay. there were
1: some issues since it's called Class Action Park. Yes, there were. <laughs> good, good.
0: I don't want to give too many spoilers no, no. away, but, but people did die there. And okay. lots of people were. Well, so bad reenactments. I'm taking off half a point. The reason I'm taking half a point off is not because they were bad as far as being cringeworthy or, or something like that. What the documentary has is it has a lot of talking heads, which I'll talk about later. It has narration and it has some of these little cartoon things. To kind of explain things and in some ways they're helpful but in other ways they're a little too cutesy like I don't mind if someone has a cartoon type thing or a computer reenactment of how something works but these were kind of funny and I'll I'll talk about it more in a later why I I didn't really like it, kind of set the tone.
1: Okay. Yeah, when people die, it's like. yeah. Yeah,
0: that's the thing. So we'll talk about that later, but I'm taking half a point off for those. Narrative cliches, no. I don't think there's a narrator. I'm pretty sure there not a narrator. Yeah, um, if you don't
1: remember, uh, then even if there was, it means yeah, it wasn't. So yeah.
0: And, and yeah, it was no. So I am gonna say no. Racial gender obtuseness. There's no points taken off for that. Although everybody in it was white, it might be just because of where it was in New Jersey and what kind of clientele mm. was there. It was kind of lower class. A who lot of peop- who were
1: they? Who were they talking to? Just regular people, or were they like they were talking talk-
0: heads? They were talking to people that worked there, and uh-huh. we'll g- and I'll talk about that a little more when we get to it Um, and people that went there and they do have a lot of archival footage which I'll get into later and it looked like most of the people that went there were white like lower Mm. class white people right Um, lack of good visuals no they actually have a lot of really good visuals of film from From when it was operating, ads from it, stuff like that, that really helped. Oh, I like that. Set the mood because a lot of it was seventies and eighties. Ooh, missing pieces. I'm taking a point off because, as I said, there were there were victims. The only victims family member that they talked to was the mother of one of them, and I thought that they could have talked more about all of the victims who died how they died they mentioned their names and where they died but they didn't go into enough detail about how they died and see and i would want that i were. would want
1: how they did yes yeah.
0: there 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 should have been more of that so that's a point off inaccuracy and acronyms no like i said they showed a lot of old footage of it the people they talked to actually went there so so they didn't have billy
1: jensen or somebody no talking about it who was never there
0: storytelling I will warn you, Maureen, that there are talking heads, many, many talking heads telling the story. But, they are all people who worked there and have actually... Well, that's okay, then. Practical knowledge of it. There are two semi-star people. One is Allison Becker, who was a guest. Yeah, They called her a guest, but she was a, well, someone that went to Action you, Park. You know,
1: you, know, you know the issue I have with any business. Yes,
0: people. Yes. If you're I, a guest, why are you paying? Well, I know, but they call her a guest I know, on IMDb. I know. I know. She was a visitor to the park, right. and Alison Becker, if you see her, you'll remember her. She's the actress who was on Parks and Recreation that played the newspaper reporter. Oh, okay. And so if you see her, she's got like dimples and stuff. And then the other one that was super funny, so they had him a lot on a lot, was Chris Gethard, who's um if you see him, you'll recognize him. I don't I think he's a little younger than us though. He's wicked funny and he went to the park a lot and he just has a funny way of telling a story, so I think that's why they had him on a lot. And Dad thought he was hilarious. Dad watched this with me by the way, Dad liked it, so oh, that's good. um so I'm taking a half point off of storytelling because also of the little cartoony things. I thought a lot of it was humorous. It's not that I don't think you can you can mix humor with tragedy, but I thought that it aired more on the side of being funny, and then the last twenty minutes of it were talking about the guy dying and stuff, and I'm like, they needed to mix it more in, I don't know, it needed to be done a little bit more smoothly, or somehow, I don't know. Freshness, I, I think it was fresh. The way it was told, I enjoyed watching it. It was nice and short. It could have had more, you know, things in it, but I think... I had never heard of it before. I wasn't from that area, so I enjoyed hearing it uh, about it. And repetition, no. There probably were a couple things they repeated showing, but it wasn't enough that it bothered me. And beating the drum, I'm going to say, I could take half a point out, but I'm not going to. Because people keep, you know, of the people saying, "Uh uh-huh, it was so funny. You know, you always got, you know, injured while you were there. Everyone who went there (laughs) got injured, blah, blah, blah. But... I don't know. It didn't bother me. So I'm giving it eight points and I highly recommend it.
1: I will watch it.
0: Eric, um, who's Hannah's father, is from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. and is what his exit. Family. <laughs> <laughs> so I texted him while I was watching it. And I said, did you ever go to Action Park? And he said, yes. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm watching a documentary about it. I said, did you ever get hurt? And he said, no. He's like, but I'm surprised my cousins never did because they were crazier than me. And then he said, my favorite ride was the Alpine Slide. And I hadn't gotten to that part yet. So I'm watching. And that's the one that I think two people died on the Alpines. Oh, no, wow. I think only one. It oh. was like a. Um, they have them at, at attached to the ski area, but they're like a, a concrete little, you know, like a bobsled type of thing. But you're on a little oh, roller right. thing, right? Like and a loose almost, right? Yeah, it it's kind of like, it's a like that. Not on ice, but right? This whole thing about this park is the guy did not have any. He just came up with these ideas for rides, <laughs> and then he had people build them. It's and like that. It's like that Dan Aykroyd character on Saturday Night Live. Yes. You know, and he bed kind of of get, broken glass. Yes, exactly. He couldn't get people to insure him, so he made this fake insurance company in the oh, Cayman wow. Islands. Oh, wow. He had, oh, like, awesome. teenagers working there. Like, just teenagers. Wow. So, I think you would enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it. I would. I'm going um, to watch it. I enjoyed it very much, but I feel like the story could be told with a little more depth, although I didn't have any problem with the humor in it. I, wonder if I, someone, I do recommend it. I wonder if someone's written a book about it. Did they have anybody who's written
1: about it on the documentary? No,
0: they have, but they did have a lot of people that I enjoyed
1: the people that worked there. The, Lots of times when I watch a documentary and they have somebody who's written a book, I'm like, good, now I'll get that person's book. They didn't, and,
0: uh, they didn't that I can remember. Oh, okay. I'll so, be interested to see if you agree I will. with me. I well, don't know. It was fun. Good.
1: An eight. That's good. That's good. An eight. Yeah. So our next episode, we're going to have the second half of the Grandview Topless Coffee Shop. Woo! And for anybody who didn't think this first half was very exciting, hopefully the second half gets more exciting. So that's it for tonight
0: then, right? Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Thanks for, you listening. for listening. Bye-bye. Yes. Oh! oh, oh, oh. What's what's happening? I don't know. Why is it all red? Just let me look. Oh, (laughs) There. I fixed it. For some reason, for for some some reason, reason, (laughs) it was I had not... I swear to God, I did nothing. I just muted. And then when I came back out, it was on... (laughs) It was on plus 18 decibels. Mm -hmm. So...
1: That doesn't... Gee, I wonder how that could have happened, though.
0: I didn't do anything. Uh, I think my notebook might have clicked the mouse.
1: Yeah, that must be what it was.